the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. As always, is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, former eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champions, one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you doing today? I am doing great today, and I hope everyone else is too. It's a wonderful, uh, chilly day here in East Tennessee, uh, but it's great nonetheless. One thing I noticed recently as far as I think it was even today or yesterday, your trainee Emily is out there kind of uh, in the ring already for NXT. So it's weird. She felt like we just talked about a few weeks ago. She just got signed. Uh, You know, it's really cool. Great to one of your students. But now I just thought she was in the ring wrestling already. Yeah. I think she's had a couple matches now in NXT. She's doing, uh, she's doing pretty good and she's doing JPWA proud. I'm really happy for her. I'm very proud of her. Is that, Normal if for a trainee, a trainee to get signed and then they're put in or the ring for live shows right away, or how does that work? Well, I really believe it's up to the individual if they're ready, if they show aptitude to get in the ring right away. Uh, then, then of course, I think uh, the idea is to get them in there if they if they look the part, if they are the part, because uh, this is a talent driven business, obviously. And if they have talent right away, you can notice in training, uh, you you can tell just by the footwork, by the mannerisms and the attitude a lot of times and body language. And, and I have to tell you, uh, Emily was uh, pretty well one of those people, one of those ladies, one of those gals, if you will, who never backed up from a guy. She never, um, I never heard, heard her complain one time in training. So, uh, and she fought most of the guys at JPWA. So, I really believe it's up to the individual, but Emily um, had a couple matches while she was here uh, in in Tennessee, and she she wrestled for KFW against another one of our trainees who will certainly be making her name on the big time shortly, Kenzie uh, Kenzie Page. So she's been she's been in the ring before with some tough competition, and I think Emily's going to do just fine. I just thought that was so interesting. It's like, wow, we just literally a couple weeks ago she got signed. I didn't know the, the process of how quickly you go from signee, you know, signee technically, trainee, and you, you know, show up at the performance center, you, you, you know, you take your picture, do all that other stuff, and boom, 
she's on live shows against uh, Deanna Perrazzo, who's a pretty good uh, female worker herself. Yes, Deanna is very good, but I think it's really up to the individual. And and Emily took this uh, like a fish to water. So I mean, she she obviously has been given the opportunity, and I, and she hadn't let us down yet. Now we saw her throw some kicks, some pretty good kicks. Is she learning that from uh, Doctor Tom? No, 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 no. She came with that. She she was a martial artist. She she had done sports all her life, and she she had trained some M- MMA, uh, a little bit of judo, a little bit of jiu-jitsu, as well as karate. So she had a great flying sidekick, a really good roundhouse and, and hook kick, too. So uh, I wish I could say I taught her everything she knows, but she knew some stuff before she got to us. She was, she was uh, uh, a well-established athlete in her life. Nice. Now, as we kind of move along into episode number 10 here, I'd like to focus on Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I got a lot, a lot of people messaging, emails, stuff like that about Smoky Mountain. They love what you've said about it. They love hearing from you. They love hearing you talk about the Smoky Mountain Times. So I want to kind of focus in on something we only touched on briefly, and that is the Night of Legends. And we were talking about that fateful night, your return to Smoky Mountain. You guys had technically been in the WWF and are still in the WWF at this point, but you were away from Smoky Mountain for about four months. You had a loser leaves town cage match, which we talked about against Rock and Roll Express. You guys are gone. You lose the Smoky Mountain tag titles. All of a sudden, four months later, Night of Legends happens at the Civic Coliseum in Knoxville, Tennessee. Those four months away, did you ever kind of think like, okay, we're going to head back to Smoky Mountain? Or you thought like, okay, now we're WWF for life? Uh, no, I, I always knew that there was a chance if if uh, uh, <laughs> if Jimmy wanted us, needed us, whatever you want to call it, that we would certainly go back to Smoky Mountain. And I really didn't mind, quite honestly, as much as it may sound that I did. I really didn't mind uh, coming back to Knoxville periodically or or working this part of the country. So um, while we were engaged in WWE activity most of our time. Um, I was always ready, willing, and open to come back to Knoxville and work for Smoky Mountain. That that never was a concern. I don't think of my, certainly not of me, not of mine, and I don't think Jimmy uh, was concerned either. Jimmy Del Rey. I think he was he was always uh, of the belief that we would certainly come back if needed or wanted. So that fateful night, Smoky Mountain Night Legends, arguably the biggest show in Smoky Mountain wrestling history, August 5th, 1994, like I mentioned, the Civic Coliseum, Knoxville, Tennessee. Attendance that night said to have been 5,000 people, which is a pretty good house, right? I mean, that's a pretty nice showing there. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty pretty good showing, especially for Smoky Mountain Coliseum, I think, can probably fit close to 10,000, but to have a, a pretty good uh, half – Half-filled building, it, was, it looked a lot fuller than half-full, so maybe I, I'm not quite sure what the capacity is there for a wrestling match. But uh, WWE does pretty good when they come in. And, uh, again, I think this this had a lot of people on the card. When you had uh, the Funks, you had Bob Armstrong, you had some other uh, legends, Ronnie Garvin, who had been a legend in Knoxville. I mean, there, there, was, there was not just one match uh, selling this card. There, there was some... Uh, Interesting matchup. So uh, it was it was a great vibe. It was a great house. It was a great uh, um, mood, if you would, not only in the back but uh, uh, for the fans. When Cornette brings you back for the show, what's the thought process on his part? Like, what does he tell you guys? Like, hey, 
you guys are in there. Obviously, you're going to be wrestling the thrill seekers, but does he say anything to you? Like, hey, I want you guys to come here and put over these two young guys. Uh, no, we knew what, what what he was looking for because these were his stars that he was pushing and uh, for us to come back. Um, that was... Uh, I, I don't think it was ever discussed. I don't. I don't remember him ever uh, telling us before we got there what we were going to do. But we had a pretty good idea because um, I don't believe that was a uh, permanent deal. I think we went back to WWE after that, didn't we? I think we mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Yes. So yep. yeah, I don't. I don't think that was ever discussed. I mean, we we pretty much knew if we were going to come in. Um, by all means, let's let's elevate somebody else and then go back to what we were doing. And and that that was the that that was pretty much my understanding anyway. Uh, although it wasn't, I don't believe it was directly said to any of us or either one of us. So if you really just kind of look at that card in general, like you're right, so many big names, so many great guys on there. First match of the night, Chris Walker who you know, had the body of an Adonis there, and obviously Vince liked him at one point, defeats right. Richard Slinger, who was kind of an underrated wrestler, great worker, was really kind of big in Japan. you have any memories of those two guys? I do, actually. I think Richard Slinger, uh, wasn't he, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but uh, but I thought he was either related to Terry Gordy as a cousin Yes. Uh, yes. Related. Uh, yep. uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, we knew about him, and and I think everyone had high hopes for him. And Chris Walker, I had known uh, from his start in Memphis. He he'd come in, uh, gosh, around oh maybe his late '80s, mid '80s when I, when I was working the Memphis territory, and always looked great. And there were high hopes for him too. You're right. Um, both of those guys had had a lot of promise, and. Uh, to be included on this card, I think, was another way to get eyes on them. You know, you had the funks there. Uh, you, you had people who had, uh, you know, of course, Jimmy was there. Jimmy had the end of WWE. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there were there was a, a huge opportunity for those guys, and I don't recall what happened in the match because we were in the back uh, discussing our own stuff, I guess. But, um two promising guys that I don't think really went much further. Slinger had a good career in Japan. He's the nephew of Terry Gordy, by the way. So, I mean, right, so right. They are related, but he kind of had a, a good career in Japan. And Chris Walker never really panned out. He looked like Conan. I mean, literally the, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan. Conan the Barbarian, that's who he kind of him. That's who he kind of looked like. He actually kind of looked like a cross between Ultimate Warrior and Kerry Von Erich. So he definitely had the look. Oh yeah, yeah, most definitely. And a lot of those guys uh, with that look uh, didn't. Uh, and I don't. I really didn't know Chris that well. But um, a lot of guys like that who got in at that time with that kind of body and that kind of uh, look about them, uh, some some made it, some didn't. You know, the the road can can eat you up and spit you out. And when you have that much uh, uh, discipline and and um, willpower, so to speak, uh, it's, it's not always easy. I mean, you're, you're getting in late nights and, and still trying to go to the gym, keep your diet, and do what you have to do to look that way. It's it's not it's not an easy easy road to go down. Some guys just not ready for it. No. Next match was Doug Furnace defeats 
killer at Kyle. We've talked about kind of Doug Furners a little bit before and how he was a great athlete, great look, maybe more suited for Japan sometimes given his stiffness. But what do you kind of think of those two guys? I, I, I always got along with Doug um, and I love killer Kyle. Great guy. Uh, he, he was always, um, <laughs> always fun to talk to and always fun to be around. And Doug, you're right. Doug was, uh, much better suited for Japan. I think his whole demeanor in life and his attitude about the business, um, he took very seriously and Doug could be, uh, very charming and very engaging, but he could turn on a dime and, uh, become this surly, sarcastic, uh, stay away from me kind of guy, which I understood. I got it. Um, but Doug, Doug was uh, a University of Tennessee graduate. And at that time, I think he was billed as the strongest man, world's strongest man. He had squatted something like uh, four tons or something like that. I, I don't know. But, but I mean, he squatted a lot of weight. He had huge legs. And um, uh, like I said, he he could be, very engaging and very charming, but uh, two seconds later he would be snarling and spitting and growling at you. So uh, that's what I remember about Doug. And Killer Kyle was always just a laid-back guy, big guy. And uh, I think Jimmy tried to make him the next big Bubba Rogers, but that just uh, kind of played out here. So the next match on the card is the Rock and Roll Express defeating Brian Lee and Chris Candido to win the Smoky Mountain Tag Team Championship. Actually, that's not actually the next match. There's a match before that, but I, I wanted to kind of skip ahead just to the Rock and Roll Express for a second. So you know, they're working again against Lee and Candido. They win the Smoky Mountain Championship again. Do you ever think, like, man, like, these guys can still be over no matter what, no matter who they're working with. They you know, kind of trade wins, and they can win the tag titles, and it, it not be bad for the crowd. The crowd doesn't shit on it. You know what I mean? They still love Rock and Roll Express no matter what. The Rock and Roll Express was that uh, that team for whatever era they they were in, um, and even even today, you know, I worked with Ricky a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he, he, 60, he said he was 64 years old and he's still going. And he, he said that publicly. I thought, I wouldn't say I'm 64 years old and still going. But, but he did, and he hit a Canadian destroyer uh, in, a, in, this, in the match I was with, uh, with him in. He didn't hit it on me, but he hit it on Shane Andrews. And, and you know, he and Robert, uh, from the time they started, had this magnetism, this electricity, um, this aura that I, that I talk a lot about uh, of just gelling as a team. Um, no matter who they worked with, you're right. They, they would come out and they had the energy, they had the vibe, they had uh, the look, especially at that time, of still being um, a well-oiled and, and well-clicking tag team. And... Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was no matter who you put the Rock and Roll Express on the card with, they were going to have a great match. And uh, it, it's great that they are in the Hall of Fame, but I'll tell you what a, a travesty is that you don't put Cornette and the Midnights in there because they, they deserve to be right along with them. But at that time, uh, they were building their legacy still, and, and they weren't going to rest on their laurels. They went out and had a hell of a match with uh, Brian and Chris, no doubt. I didn't see that one either. I don't think we went out. I don't think we watched any matches that night. Um, 
uh, and didn't <laughs> didn't didn't see the crowd until we went out for our match. But uh, Candido and Brian Lee at that time, especially with Tammy, they I I had seen some of their stuff prior to this night, and I I knew all three obviously. And uh, gosh, I thought they were a clicking machine too. They just had all the elements. So so all the elements for the match was there, too. You had great heels, and you had great baby faces to work with. Now, primetime Brian Lee, who big favorite of uh, Cornette at that point, you kind of surprised that he didn't, you know, not that he didn't amount to much of his career, but, like, that he didn't do more in his career, that he kind of, you know, he could have almost been a bigger star than he really was. Well, I I was – very good friends with Brian and uh he, he used to stay with me when he would come from Nashville and and he he was he was one of those people that that uh, actually would would stay over with me um yeah, and and surprising in some ways but in others not so much because uh especially as I've I've gone on and um got some years under my belt I, I knew and I I know what it takes to be successful in the business, but to actually execute it, you have to pull the trigger and you have to execute it. You must be positive. You must be uh, confident. You, you have to have uh, the performer's ego. You've got to believe in yourself. And Brian did, uh, but I, I think he also fell into the same trap a lot of people did. And that pretty much derailed him because he had all the tools. He had all the connections. He had all the uh, elements in place to be a star. The problem is you have to concentrate on all those things 24-7. It's pretty much a grind, and you you can't be one of the boys. You have to be. If you're going to be in that million-dollar club, you've got to uh, separate yourself. And Brian could do that to an extent, uh, but at the same time, I don't think he was necessarily – well, obviously he wasn't. uh, Maturity-wise, he wasn't ready to um, take the lead and and, and take that next step. And what I mean by that is you, you have to pay attention to business. You have to pay attention to everything you do, and you've got to make everything you do, uh, in, especially in public, show everyone that you're you're capable and you really want to be a top guy and a guy figured in. And I don't know that Brian was willing to do what that took at that time in his life. I think he was um, – Still believing he could go out all night and uh, uh, still function in the morning like like everything was great, and eventually uh, it's going to catch up to you. You mentioned Tammy as well, obviously the manager, Sonny, there will be a lot of people out there. What you know, her role then obviously was what it was, but what did you think of her? As far as with that parent, you think she added to that? Added to Smoky Mountain? Do you think she was good in her role? Like, what are your thoughts on her? I look for for whatever uh, feelings I have towards Tammy, and and I I have empathy for her at times, and but at that time I had nothing but uh, not a whole lot of uh, 
empathy. I understood Tammy. I, I believe I understood Tammy. But I thought she really did add to that team because any anybody she was connected with, she had instant heat. She had natural heat. She she was one of those people that no matter um, who she was going to face or who, who her team was going to face, if she did the talking, uh, the women were going to hate her because she knew she was young and cute and pretty and all that good stuff, and she let everybody know about it, even backstage at that time. And uh, that that's natural charisma. That's natural heat. She didn't have to pretend. She she that was her. What you saw on TV was 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 her. And so I I thought yes, definitely she added to it. And you have to have those uh, performers, those egos, those uh, attitudes. And she certainly didn't struggle with it. She she brought it right out, and she let you know she was. But she was, and she was proud of it. So, yeah, she added a lot to him. She has her demons, that's for sure. Recently released from jail yet again. So it's like, oh, my God, she just constantly kind of getting in trouble or, you know, shooting herself in the foot, like that kind of thing, where she's always uh, in the thick of things. Yeah, but, but once again, I, I, I think anybody with with the, the enormous talent she did have, and she did have talent, um, there's something burning inside, and whatever, whatever lit that that fire or lit that fuse, um, didn't stop her from from getting closer and closer uh, to that flame every every day of her life. I mean, it's okay sometimes to uh, <laughs> have that burning flame and know when to. To, to smolder it a little bit, but I, I think it was burning hot and fast with her, and and sometimes it's like going down the road with no brakes, man. You're freewheeling the whole time. You just uh, there's there's nothing to hold you back. When there's nothing and and no one to say no to you, uh, why should you stop? Is is I think the 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 rationale with her anyway. So she just um I, I do I have empathy. Uh, for her in that respect, it, it's it's a hard thing to um, to uh, for an 18 year old girl. She came to Smoky Mountain at 18. And Cornette put her right in the spot, man. When when he we, he saw her and heard her talk and st- just the look, and then you, she 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 cut a promo and did whatever she did, and uh, you know Jimmy can rec- recognize talent, and he did. So it, I think it's hard at that age to to get a taste of fame and all of a sudden get brought up to New York and here's Vince McMahon and everybody around him telling you, oh, my goodness, you're great. And then she's the most downloaded celebrity on AOL when AOL was, was just starting out. It's like um, some people can handle it, but most can't because you don't know. Um, you, you're going down the road that, that no one else has traveled yet. And, and sometimes uh, it can be a, a real heady and it can be, it can be a little um, mental masturbation and, and nobody's there to stop you before you get your nut, man. It's, and once you do, <laughs> yeah, once you do, it's like, oh, my God, I can do this forever and, and nobody's going to say anything to me. So uh, yeah, for her, I mean, gosh, you, you need – Characters and people like that, but 
you have to be careful that they don't uh, go over that cliff. And and unfortunately, she did it a couple times. So I hope she really, I do. I hope she she's better now, and I hope she gets uh, help, and I hope she stays um, safe and does better. So we were kind of just going over the matches and, and different things, and we'll get right back to it. But what's the protocol on the wrestlers watching the matches? What's the norm there? Like you said, you didn't see any of the matches, and so you went out there, you didn't see the crowd. What's kind of the, the protocol, even if there is protocol, for watching other wrestlers' matches? Well, you you would certainly want to watch the match uh, matches before you so you don't go out and repeat the same things. I mean, that 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 is the logical way of thinking for most guys uh, who know anything about the business. I think that night in particular, um, because there were so many guys there, we were just talking and, and, and hadn't seen everybody in a long time. So, um, you know, I, I, I remember sitting – talking with Terry Funk, Jimmy and I were talking with Terry Funk um, uh, about Japan or just, just sitting there. And before we knew it, you know, our match was on and, but we had talked to, to everybody. We just hadn't been around for a while and, and kind of catching up. And uh, you mean to watch the matches. I like to watch the matches. I like to see what goes on. I, I like to see what everybody's doing, but sometimes you, you just get caught up and somebody else you'll, you'll, finish one conversation and somebody's right there and you, you, you venture off to that corner, man. And that was, uh, that was what we did. So, but the protocol usually is you do want to watch the matches. You want to see who came before you and what they did. And, um, uh, uh, just so you don't get caught up and, and do that same spot or that same thing. Is there any sort of edict from the promoter or owner or boss saying, I want you guys to sit down and watch a monitor nothing like that? Used to be. There used to be. Jimmy wasn't so much on that. I mean, I, I think there was on some guys probably, and uh, some of the younger guys or some of the newer guys. Uh, certainly, I'm sure he'd want, want everyone to watch the matches. And uh, and if if there was a place to watch them, you would find most of the guys watching them, most of the guys who cared anyway. But the Coliseum, you would have to be backstage and, and peek through a curtain. It wasn't a whole lot of uh, room, uh, especially in Knoxville Coliseum. You, the, the chairs or the, or the seats would be um, in your way. So, I mean, it wasn't a whole lot of uh, opportunity, but, you I mean, you can make it if you wanted to. Much I watched matches there before behind the, scene, behind the curtain. So, but not that night. So, I kind of skipped over, but Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater, old school, Great tag team, even old school for 94 as far as just being a great tag team. Double DQ with Ronnie Garvin and the Mongolian Stomper. Thoughts for, I guess, first on Orton and Slater, such a great old school team, but in 94, it's like, wow, they're bringing, you know, they're bringing back this team from kind of the early mid-80s that were great. But once again, Knoxville, Tennessee has such a wrestling history, and you got to know that Orton and Slater have a history here in Knoxville. Orton, I think, went with... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Orton was 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 on the outs when Malenko and Bob Roop and uh, everybody kind of split from Ron Fuller. And I remember a story that Slater, you know, the guys from uh, I don't even know what the the company was, but but they came to the to Ron's show and Slater was part of the show and uh, part of the uh, part of the crew. And I think Slater even got out of the ring because Bob Roop and some of the other guys were sitting ringside and challenged him to a fight. And Double Dog dared him, man, got to the the railing or the barricade, whatever it was they had at that time, 
and they never got up. They never never made a move because Dickie was a bad man. Dickie was uh, uh, a real tough guy. I saw him. Real quick story, little side note. Uh, in Houston, they had a, a three-day tournament, and this guy named Evan Johnson. <laughs> Evan Johnson from Minnesota came down for this uh, this tournament. With it was three days. Vern Gagne was going to be there all over the weekend too, and all this stuff. Well, uh, Slater was the booker, and he booked himself against Evan Johnson. And Evan had, was was green. He he hadn't been in the business maybe three months, whatever it had been. I don't know, or maybe he trained with Vern for a year. I'm not sure about that. But the important part is this. They go out to the ring, and uh, it's on TV, too. And, and once again, we're all in, in, back in the Houston dressing room, the hockey dressing room. And uh, Slater comes back, and he's hot, and uh, we don't know why. And it's Manny Fernandez and Chavo Guerrero Sr. and myself are kind of at the, at the front of the locker room where the door is. And he comes in, and uh, Manny says something like, what's wrong, Dickie? And Dickie didn't say anything. This guy, Evan Johnson, comes back in the dressing room, and uh, Slater says, what the hell was that? And, and Evan says, well, you're trying to eat me up out there. And Slater says, I'll eat you up back here, god damn it. And I swear to God, he pushed him back. He nailed him, pushed him back into a uh, one of those hockey uh, cubicles and had like a Texas titty twister on him, grabbed his like his nipple and was twisting. And, I mean, had the guy, <laughs> I swear to God, this damn thing, had the guy in the corner about ready to throw a punch and uh, – Manny, Chavo, and myself pulled him off. And uh, Evan Johnson actually got wind of it and emailed me about this because I said, I, was talking, I, I wrote a uh, blog about tough guys and I told the story about Dickie doing this. Just that wasn't what happened. And I said, I wrote him back, went back and forth, said, I was there. That's exactly what happened. His daughters had looked it up on the internet and um, asked him about it. He got all hot about it. And I said, man, it was over 30 years ago. And um, what I was there. It didn't. It, it, he was telling me there were lockers in the room. There weren't lockers in this dressing room. I know Houston. I grew up in Houston. When I was working, there was, a, it was, a, there was never lockers in the, in the Houston dressing room. But this was a hockey locker room especially and uh, all this stuff. But Dickie was a bad man. And Orton was was a great, <laughs> hell of a tough guy too, I believe. And I worked with both of them, but they were great workers. And then you had Garvin and the Stomper, again Knoxville history, and that's why I think Jimmy made that match because the Mongol. Again, I've said this before, Knoxville has a history rich uh, wrestling fan background here. And Stomper was a big name. Slater and Orton were big names, and um, uh, Garvin was a big name, so I think just just a nostalgia of it, um, remembering how tough Ronnie Garvin was, hands of stone, and the Mongolian stomper, the, just being the Mongolian stomper. He never spoke English on on interviews or anything like that. Yet he was a, he was a sheriff here in Knoxville, so people recognized him a lot, and uh, so I, I believe that match was certainly uh, of interest to the wrestling fans of Knoxville. Ronnie Garvin, heads in stone. One thing about him, when you meet him, he's not a tall guy or a big guy. You shake his hands, though, he's got the hands of like a bear. I mean, he's got a big set of hands. He does. He does. And I believe he was one of those um, uh, deceivingly tough guys, one of those guys that, that you, you think, he's, because he's not tall, he's not a big guy. But 
I, I, I would venture to say that um, it wouldn't take him uh, maybe one one or two punches, or, or he's one of those guys that could put you down and, and stretch you, or he's the guy that would put his finger in your eye too. He's he's one. Of, he comes from that school. They say, who knows about this though, because Ronnie's pretty humble. They say one of the very few guys, Andre the Giant, was very kind of leery of like fighting it or wouldn't want to very, mess with them kind of thing. Very true. Andre sold for him. I've seen the match. Andre is selling for Ronnie that he, for like he's never sold for anybody before. I don't know if he was leery of him or just respected him. They're both from Canada and Montreal. They both spoke French. And uh, if you you. I don't know if it's on YouTube. I can't remember where I saw it. It has to be on YouTube. Uh, but Ronnie is um, taking Andre down and, and I think working his leg or stomping him. And Andre's <laughs> he wouldn't allow it. To, it wouldn't happen unless Andre allowed it. So that was how much respect Andre had for Ronnie. Yeah, there's actually a handicap match where it's Andre and somebody else as a team versus Ronnie Garvin. So that's, yeah. like, shocking, too. It's like, wow, he must really respect this guy. Uh, Ronnie always says they were good friends. That's why. But, I, you know, you always hear from other wrestlers that Garvin, had he, you know, landed a punch, would probably knock the guy out, which is crazy yeah. to think. It is but, crazy. But Ronnie is a – he's definitely a guy I, I wouldn't want to mess with. Him, Dick Slater, a lot of those guys, right? Those legit yes. tough guys, you know, you just don't want to mess with them. <laughs> I didn't want to mess with anybody. <laughs> I was I was happy to go out there and work, Yeah. So the next matchup, the Thrill Seekers, Chris Jericho and Lance Storm versus the Heavenly Bodies, they get the win in a street fight. Now, we talked about this just a little bit uh, last week when we were talking about Smoky Mountain. Jericho gets injured before the match and kind of ruins the whole match. Not ruins it because it's still great, but kind of, you know, he hurts it a little bit. Yeah, but but I don't think this was a street fight, was it? I believe it. Yeah, because we came came out – uh, this is the one I'm thinking of. Is this just the blood and guts? Oh yes, yeah. Jericho we, well, like crazy. Yeah, because we just came out in our trunks. I don't believe it was was a street fight, but it may have been listed that way or billed that way. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, before the show, uh, we had come in, and I believe we had done four weeks worth of promos for each town that we we're going to come back to because we we're coming back, and. Uh, <laughs> Back in those days, you know, we were doing stuff prior to uh, uh, the match that happened. But uh, we were cutting the promos like uh, like it already happened. And Jericho wants to work on a shooting star press before the match and goes out and breaks his arm, goes to the hospital, comes back, and uh, has it in a cast. And uh, so they had to cover it. And I think JR said it was a motorcycle accident. And we go out, and uh, I know a couple times he slammed us with one arm, you know. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was a good test for us, to take care of the guy, and that's that's pretty much what we did. But the blood and guts at the end of it was was that was again wrestling, and back in those days, so uh, kind of barbaric for today's standards, obviously. But we, the idea was. Uh, that there's no way these guys can beat us. Um, and uh, I think the finisher is going to have Lance drop kick Jericho onto us or something like that uh, at, at the finish. At the end, anyway, we changed it up, 
And Jericho just small or schoolboy Jimmy, I think. And uh, the referee shirt, Mark Curtis, his his shirt was all covered in blood. We were covered in blood, and back then again, it was that was wrestling. That was East Tennessee wrestling, you know. And uh, uh, <laughs> it added to the drama. Uh, if you will, again, in, in a coliseum with the house lights down, the ring lights over, over the ring. That was the only thing you had to concentrate on, and uh, uh, you could you could feel the tension, you could feel the uh, the the rise of the people with Jericho. You know these these young kids fighting their hearts out, and Jericho and Storm, and and um, it was it was built great, and we cut cut the promos about how. Uh, next time you won't get away so lucky, but, but obviously he got away a lot luckier than he really should have with a broken arm. So he fought his heart out, man, but that was, uh, uh, we could have done that a lot better without the broken arm, but I think it added to it, to be honest with you. What do you think of Jericho at that point? Like, Jesus, this guy's tough. He just went to the hospital, broken arm, now he's still going to wrestle? Yeah, but but once again, we knew that when, when they came in, they they had some talent, both of those guys, and we, we kind of figured uh, first time we worked with them that they they weren't just pushovers, and they both were tough. He and Lance both, and I think uh, when he broke his arm <laughs> and came back in the cast, we said, yeah, okay, he's he's got it, he understands, and uh, you know, I. I I have a lot of respect for Jericho to this day. Uh, I mean, my gosh, he 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 keeps reinventing himself. He he he, he stays. Um, uh, I I I believe he stays fresh all the time, and he he has his hands in so many different ventures. It's it's uh, great to see him doing what he's doing. But back then, as a young guy, he had that fire, he had that heart, and he had the drive. Uh, and that's always good to work with someone like that because they, they they always give you a great match, and they always did. Did you think then, like, okay, I think this guy's going to be a big star? Not like saying he's going to be as big a star as you become, but did you think like, okay, future main eventer here? Uh, I could I couldn't say that because the business was still a big man sport. Maybe around here, maybe in the south, uh, possibly, but. Um, no one, uh, again, uh, unless you were six, two or, or six, three, something like that, that was when, uh, you know, big men still ruled and, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't until those guys, those guys, guys like Jericho Mysterio and Billy Kidman and Eddie and, and everybody went to the, um, uh, cruiserweight division, WCW, that people started respecting those guys even more so because they got a uh, national or global platform, and, and they were able to shine. So I don't know that I can say, yeah, I knew Jericho was going to be as big a star as he was. No, I, I, I can't say that. Same thing like with Austin. You, 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 just, you knew Steve was going to be good. You knew Steve was going to be big. You just didn't know how big. I, I don't think anyone could say ever until, until, it's, <laughs> until it's done, really. But you knew Jericho was going to be good, so was Lance. Interesting thing about them, and no, no knock on, on Lance Storm, great wrestler, um, just totally great performer, but you could tell maybe less in the charisma factor. Jericho had more charisma. It's one of those things where the yin and yang of the team, you know what I mean? Like definitely a little bit of a different situation between those guys. 
No doubt, no doubt. Glance was certainly a little more reserved. You could tell. Uh, the thing is, Lance had a personality backstage when no one else was looking. And and a lot like Brad Armstrong in the sense that uh, Brad was a tremendous worker, tremendous athlete, could do tremendous things uh, in the match. But, you know, when he it came time to talk or to project – uh, a personality that was all Jericho and um, Lance could do it in the back, not as much as Brad, but could do it in the back. And Lance had the uh, capability in the ring. I mean, they both could do great stuff, great aerial stuff, uh, technically sound, fundamentally sound. And, uh, you know, it was Jericho who was more of the rock and roller and you could tell he's a little, uh, uh, had a little bit of the crazy side to him, and Lance may or may not have. I never really saw the crazy side to him, but uh, Jericho was a, much, a lot more evident. <laughs> Just look at him and then talk to him, and he was certainly a little more assertive, if you will. You mentioned having to basically have four weeks of TV be ruined because of the injury and everything that was going to happen. It's going to change the aftermath. When you say the four weeks of TV is going to be ruined, what actually ends up happening? Like, does Cornette throw out the tapes? I mean, do you have to start from scratch? Like, what's the you know, the end game, the aftermath of all that? Ah, uh, well, no, we just cut promos for each town that we were going to for four weeks, and uh, we were going to come back. But so we didn't have to change it. We just, I think, on the commentary, Jr. covered it by saying uh, Jericho was in a motorcycle accident, but he still wanted to make this match. And uh, so we didn't really have to change anything. Cornette actually thought it was a rib, I believe, when somebody came back and said Jericho broke his arm. He's going to the hospital. He goes, oh, yeah, right. Because Chris had asked Jimmy, he said, do you mind if I go out and work on this uh, move? He said, yeah, just don't get hurt. And then somebody comes, I think it was, again, Brian Hildebrand came back and said, uh, I think Jericho broke his arm. He's going to the hospital. So uh, we didn't have to change it. But if if we did, then we it's just something we would have had to do. I mean, uh, it would have been annoying or, or inconvenient, if you will, I guess. Not annoying, but inconvenient. But that's just what we would have had to do. And uh, I, I, I don't think – because we didn't have to do it, I never gave it a second thought. The fact that you guys are such great workers, you can kind of carry two young guys with a lot of potential very easily and just make the match go smoothly and go great. What were your kind of thoughts during the match? You kind of in line with what I'm saying, like, okay, this is no problem. These guys are green, but they got potential. We can make this work. Oh, yeah. No, I I tell you, the the greatest uh, thing I think we we kind of hung our hat on was – we knew how to make baby faces. We knew how to make another team look really good. And, and I think that goes back to the rock and roll express, um, doing what they did, uh, with, with every team they worked with as well. Uh, we, we knew what, what the end game was here. We knew we were trying to get across. We knew the story. So, um, we knew what we were going to do. And uh, we had faith in the thrill seekers that they knew what to do. Uh, they did. And once again, even though Jericho had one arm, we feed in for body slams. We're not going to rush him. Uh, it's all about timing. It's all about body language. It's all about feel. It's all about uh, uh, 
getting in there and, and doing what you're supposed to do and tell that story and communicate it to the fans. And, um, and they, they followed right along. They knew, and they knew what the story was too. And so you ha- it, it takes four to tangle, but with Jim out there too, it takes five. And it, it was, uh, I, it wound up just the way it was supposed to wind up. And, you know, maybe, maybe even better because, uh, Chris had the broken arm and he had to, uh, had to do what he did with his, with his other arm that maybe wasn't as, uh, dominant or whatever, man. But, but he just, the, the, the crimson mask, um, is what made that match. And, and, and Jericho sold like, like he was going through the electric chair. It was great. As far as that and, you know, blading and, and, you know, he's bleeding like crazy. Does he actually blade himself? Do you guys blade him? How did that work in that match? Mm. Well, I nailed him on that uh, dadgum railing that we had to separate the, the barricades, to separate the uh, the fans from the action. And, boy, I tell you, I just laid into him. No, it, it was all Chris. <laughs> yeah, it was all Chris. Because uh, I, w- I wouldn't want to do that to anybody. I wouldn't want anybody to do it to me. Now, as far as like that kind of protocol, when that is about to happen, obviously you know he's going to get a lot of sympathy from the crowd. You guys are going to be hated. What's the the when you guys are sending it up backstage? It's just like Cornette calls for it. He wants to do it. Like who's kind of saying like, all right, um, is Jericho basically saying I want to be the one that does it? Like what's the protocol backstage well, for that? Well, again, the story that we're trying to tell was here are these two young kids. Um, rising to stardom, and they're going to step in the ring with us. You know, hell, we we just been in WWE, and we're we're doing um, uh, coming back to Knoxville because Jim Cornette wants to knock these kids off their their perch, so to speak. And what's the best way to tell that story? Well, you know, Cornette has run the roost, and is his the first ever Smoky Mountain Tag Team Champions. At least one half of them are coming back. Uh, to defend the honor of Jim Cornette and defend the honor of Smoky Mountain Wrestling and show these guys who the dominant team is. What a better way than to get sympathy from the guy who has the personality, the guy who has the long hair with the, you know, the blonde hair. And when it gets bloody, it turns red and his face is red. And man, when it gets in your hair and it's flying. And uh, that was the idea to get that much blood to where it's just so, uh, voluminous, <laughs> voluminous, whatever. We, a lot of a lot of blood. How about that? And and it that was the idea to where it's so obvious, and the referee has to check him, and the referee calls the match off. Says no, he's bleeding too much. Uh, we've got to stop this. And Chris then says, no, 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 no. I want to keep going. What? You want to keep going? And we're saying what? No, we stop the match. No, wait. I'm ringing the bell again. Here we go. And then a quick roll up. Uh, so that was that was the storyline, but but in order to do that, Chris had to do exactly what he did, which was uh, be covered in his own blood. And if you go back and watch it, you'll see um, I'm covered in it, Jimmy's covered in it, the referee is covered in it. In the end, because we're grabbing his shirt, and we've been with Chris the whole time, and and Chris is is putting it over that he's been beat half to death, and and in the end. We're just wailing on him in the corner, and finally the referee says, that's it. 
no more. I'm going to protect this guy from himself. And uh, <laughs> Chris says, nope. No, I want to keep going. All right. So I, I filed a complaint with Bob Geigel at the NWA then, too, and said, I think the bell rang, and we should have been the victors, but that fell on deaf ears. Damn, Bob, come on. Yeah. It was a true bloodbath. I mean, whew, there was a, a lot of blood from Jericho. Ever any thought of like, okay, this might be, you know, might be a little dangerous. Maybe he went a little too far. But uh, nope. never, 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 never. Because see, if you, uh, I've, I've been in those blood baths before, and I've been on the receiving end, and I know how it feels when you got the blood pumping, and maybe I mean for some people, but in my in my uh, uh, case, and in my opinion. I think it was even hyping Jericho up more uh, because you can feel the people that you can feel them getting with him, and you can feel the 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 tension, and you and you and you know that they're getting behind you, and you can feel it, and and that's what I think the great workers do is is they you you have to feel it, and. Jericho was feeling it. There's there's a time too in the corner where I'm, I give him a right and I give him a left and I give him another one. He, and he hits me one time. I stagger back and then I stop him. Uh, but he's feeling it. He knows when to when to fight back. He knows when to go go down or not fight back. And I I, I don't think that was dangerous. The only danger in the match that I that we were concerned about and that we were watching out for the whole match was his arm. We didn't want to do any more damage to his arm than was already done. And uh, the rest of it, um, <laughs> the rest of it, uh, pretty much worked out the way it should have worked out. The rest of kind of not his career, because that's really I don't know if you realize this, this is Jericho's basically last match in Smoky Mountain, never to return. I did not know that. Yeah, he, he, that was his last match in Smoky Mountain. Yeah, he never came back. Well, then, oh, well, maybe Smoky Mountain closed shortly after that. Well, I guess he had an injury, and I believe he went to ECW right after that. Ah, could have been. That could have been because, yeah, those guys were were there, and and it was um, was 94, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay, so 94. When did Smoky Mountain close? 95. 95? Okay, so so things might have been – you know, greener on the other side, I, possible. But uh, you know, it was, I, I think even if you ask Chris, it, it was an experience. Um, they certainly wouldn't have got anywhere else, and uh, they 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 got to meet Jim Cornette at that stage of their career in their life, and they got they got to see some interesting things here in East Tennessee after coming down from Canada. Uh, you know, so. Uh, I, I would venture to say, if you ask Chris for the amount of time he was here, he, he chalks it up to a hell of an experience, uh, and and it helped him later on in life just to to have stories to tell, if nothing else. And if, and if he doesn't have any stories he wants to tell, at least he knows um, that he got in the ring uh, with a broken arm. And he went about, gosh, how long was the match? 15, 12? 15 minutes, yep. Okay, about 15 minutes. And he made it through. He he, he did something that a lot of people can, 
can't say they did that they went in the match with a broken arm and uh uh fifteen minutes got juice and told the story that needed to be told and uh fulfilled his obligation and lived up to it in in, in spades he he did it better than anybody expected him to probably that night i mean i i i think i don't think we went in uh curious if he could do it or not i think we just went in making sure our our concern was to not uh make his arm any worse he he didn't care he just he went with it and that's the, i think that's a mark of, of a great worker too and that that's a mark of a guy who belongs so it looks like he went to japan after that after it settled down i guess with the injury and then eventually would head back uh to ecw in a little a little bit later than that which is interesting it's so interesting that he's injured and gone, but they kind of continue with Lance Storm and you guys because he'll team with Tracy Smothers and he'll team with the Dirty White Boy. So it was kind of, I guess, supposed to lead to more Jericho Storm Thrill Seeker versus Heavenly Body matches. Well, of course, yeah. That, that's why we did the the promos and the, mm-hmm. uh, the yep. blood and guts because he he, he was going to come back and get revenge, obviously, on us. And I'm yep. sure we were, I'm sure we were going to be left in a bloody heap eventually. But uh, I, I guess it didn't work out that way. No, and you guys kind of would only stay really for essentially like a week or so, and then you'd come back about four or five months later. So it's one of those things where that was kind of one of your last hurrahs there. So they, they kind of wanted to make stars of the thrill seekers knowing that you guys would head back to WWF, right? Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. That was, again, I knew that was our spot when, uh, when we were going to come back and, and make these guys and obviously come back after that and uh, have matches with them. And, and like I said, I'm sure we were going to be left uh, in, in a heaping pile of blood. In fact, uh, that's what Tracy smothers and, DWB, Dirty White Boy, did to uh, did to me in uh, in the Coliseum. I don't remember. Uh, gosh, how many? How long it was after that? But where uh, White Boy takes my head and smashes me in the turnbuckle, I think twenty times in a row, and and I come away bloody, and they just beat the living hell out of me. And Tracy uh, pile drives me through through the timekeeper's table. I was supposed to take a backdrop and, and break the table, but he gave me the backdrop and we were all sweating and it slid right off. And uh, Tracy then picked me up and I thought, oh my God, this is not a good feeling right here. We stood on the table and uh, pile driving me through it and that's when we broke it. But um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure we were going to have some more matches with the thrill seekers and, and there was going to be a lot more crimson mask, if you will, for, for one of us. You think blood is missing from uh, today's wrestling as far as uh, WWE is concerned? Do I think that's what's missing? Like a big component that's missing because they don't do WWE doesn't do blood anymore. Think it's like a big kind of missing thing, big component. Well, that missing. well yeah, I, I will say this. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that there's a lot of political correctness and a lot of um, lack of violence because of the world we live in today and and we're trying to be more civil. But then I look around and say, my God, we're in such an uncivil world we we live in. I don't know why we can't do it. I I really think blood, when used the right way, 
is great for wrestling. And I do think uh, professional wrestling doesn't need to be as sterile as it seems to be today. AEW um, gives you blood sometimes, and that's I think that's cool. But I think with, again, the climate we live in with um, – politically correct and millennials being offended. And I don't want to go off on millennials, but man, I got, I, I, sometimes it, it kills me when little things um, offend some group and they get upset about it. But yet there's another group and a larger group who says it's okay, but we have to cater to the minority groups. Um, like a millennial group. I'm not saying that ah, I'm going to get in trouble here. I know I am, but, but I think blood, yes, when used correctly, when used at the right time, uh, is certainly great. And I do think there's, there's a lot missing from wrestling today. I think the feeling is missing. I think that, uh, emotion, I think communication, I think, uh, personal angles, personal issues. Um, I think, going out there and and believing what you're doing and having others even just get lost in the mystique and the aura. Uh, the problem today, I think, and, and cut me off before I go on a long rant, but the problem I think today is anybody can put something on YouTube. Anybody can put something on Twitter, social media, whatever it is. Anybody can be a celebrity. And therefore... Um, what makes you special if you're a performer, whether it be an athlete, uh, a singer, uh, a musician, whatever it may be, what makes you so special that you're going to stand head and shoulders above the crowd on YouTube or, or TV or, uh, my God, how many avenues are there that you can watch something and be entertained by it? Um, and wrestling, I think, has kind of—I don't, I don't want to say—leveled uh, out. But at the same time, you have so many rules and so many restrictions that you can't—you—you uh, you, you can't get blood, or you can't have somebody bleed, and, you know, and then they stop the match. I mean, health concerns. I certainly—I uh, agree. I agree. I agree. You can pick up so many diseases from the mat. You can pick up diseases from another person. I agree. Um, so you don't do it all the time, but man, back in the day, back in my day, kid, uh, <laughs> you know, I, really, we would wrestle on, on some pretty crazy mats not uh, who needed, that needed to be sterile, sterilized and, and washed and things like that, but it was professional wrestling. And, and I think WWE has done a great job in watching out for the health of their um, and performers and, and their workers, and uh, and and that's the upside to it. The downside to it is a lot of the excitement, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, tension and, and danger, if you will, uh, has has gone by the wayside too. And I think, uh, for me, once again, I grew up in a different era. I grew, I grew up watching a different era, different kind of wrestling, but. It was so. It was much more exciting when you had a guy in his prime like Terry Funk, who who 
unless you're my age, you don't know what Terry Funk was like in his prime. And, he, and Terry Funk, uh, hardcore Terry Funk is 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 great. But when Terry was coming up and before he won the NWA championship, he he was incredible and unique and didn't work like anybody else. And he was dangerous and he was off the wall. And you, you give him four minutes in the match and you'll have a riot. Um, I, I've seen it. And that just doesn't happen today because everybody – Believes they know what's going on, and and wrestling has been exposed since since the beginning. There there have always been rumblings, and, and uh, but but the difference is, you still had those guys who you said, and Johnny Valentine said it best: they may not believe in wrestling, but I'll make them believe in me. And you don't have those guys anymore necessarily, unless it's Brock Lesnar. Brock to me is the only guy that will go out there and people. Uh, we'll say now <laughs> that guy's pretty brutal. He's he's the real deal, and he is. Um, but he also knows how to do business, and that's the key: knowing when to do it and when when to do what's what's right for you. And um, so, again, the answer to your question: What do I think there's elements missing in wrestling today? Yes, I do. But that uh, from concussions to, um, you know, getting diseases and things like that, it's better off for the guys uh, in that respect. So he's taking – WWE is taking care, better care of their guys, no doubt. AEW, um, I don't know that much about as far as the inside workings, but um, at least they're giving some excitement with the blood and guts. And, and uh, even, even after <laughs> – what what AEW is doing, at least there's another another place for the guys going, at least there's an alternative for fans to watch. So um are there are there elements they could do better? I think so, but I'm not their demo, so but I say it doesn't matter. Great, great points there. Now just to finish off the card, just to top off the card, Dirty White Boy defeats Terry Gordy by DQ to retain the Spokey Mountain Championship. Dirty White Boy, you know very well. We talked about him a lot. Kind of a great underrated worker. Pretty cool to see. I know Terry Gordy maybe not 100% his prime at this point, but still great to see Terry Gordy in a Spokey Mountain ring and a huge name to add to the show. No doubt. Uh, and, and Terry was always um, – you know, Terry's from, from – uh, Alabama or Tennessee, he's a Tennessee boy, and and uh, he he loved coming back to the South. And Tennessee was Tennessee. Terry Terry was was one of the boys first and foremost, and uh, he was always he's one of the guys we were talking to a lot back in the back too. So um, I I know you know white boys from Knoxville, so that that made him feel good too having a. Uh, in the main event in his hometown. So, yeah, it was, it was great. And, and I think just put it, wrap it up in a boat. Jim Cornette wanted to put on the night of legends and, uh, it was an, uh, eclectic mix of guys from the past, guys of the present and guys of the future. And, uh, Terry Gordy was one of those guys that believable when he went, when he got in the ring, no matter who he wrestled, and, you know, it, it just, it added to 
the specialness of the card that night. And it added to um, all the guys who had made their names in Japan uh, and who were going to make their names in Japan and, and other places later on. So it was. It was kind of a nice touch. It was a nice uh, mix of talent. But Terry Gordy and White Boy went out, and I'm, I'm sure, once again, I didn't I didn't see any of the matches, but I'm sure they went out and had a hell of a match because that's what they did back then. And, and it was wrestling or wrestling, however you want to pronounce it, however you want to spell it. Uh, they went out and obviously told a hell of a story. And uh, Terry Gordy at that time, I still think, didn't disappoint. And uh, he might have been a little past his, past his prime, but he, but he could still go. And I worked with Terry on a couple of occasions. Um, I, I actually had, like, my, my third match with Michael and Terry in Louisiana on TV where they, Michael backdropped me into Terry's uh, uh, pile driver. But then I wrestled Terry in a singles match in Alabama uh, when I was Continental Champion, and he put me over twice, which was, which was kind of cool because he, he really was a big star. And uh, and it was a testament to his, his great work that he knew how to make the match work. And I was uh, obviously adding my touches and adding my uh, uh, my feel to it, too. And, and, it, and it really came together. So um, I don't know that I've, I've really seen too many bad Terry Gordy matches, if any. Of course. One more match, the main event. Bob Armstrong, Road Warrior Hawk, and Tracy Smothers defeat Bruiser Bedlam, Dory Funk, and Terry Funk with Jim Cornette in a Coward Waves the Flag six-man match. What a star-studded match there, maybe minus Bruiser Bedlam, but what a star-studded match that is. Yeah, anytime you had the Funks, like I said, Terry could get a riot going uh, in four minutes. And with Jim Cornette at ringside uh, and Bruiser Bedlam at that time, Bruiser was, was kind of green. But uh, Jimmy was grooming him, and he was listening, paying attention, and then he had the Funks. So here he was uh, being able to take this green heel, put him with these two veteran world champ, former world champions. Um, and, and what an education, no doubt, just in that short time, uh, a couple hours he got to spend with those guys that night. So, um, yeah, and Bob Armstrong, once again, the bullet, he was the commissioner of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But to finish off, um, I think everybody went home happy that night. I know I did. What do you think of it overall? I know you didn't see most of it, but just kind of listening, crowd reactions. I got to uh, tell you, gate, I, everything like that. Yeah, walking walking in the Knoxville Coliseum was was a, a really cool thing because we had been there, and I'd wrestled there before, and it's still here. WWE still runs shows in the Coliseum. Um, it's, it's, it's been around since the early sixties and it has that old school wrestling feel to it. So, uh, walking in and feeling the buzz, knowing what was going on, uh, had an idea once we sat down and we did the promos and, and we got there early in the afternoon and, and cut everything we needed to cut. Uh, and then we, we kind of sat back in the back and, and, you know, there's, there's the dressing rooms. There's, they had a couple different 
dressing rooms and, and you had the team rooms and the individual ones. And then, you know, we also had the chairs just sitting outside the dressing rooms talking and, and uh, you know, bullshitting back and forth with, with everybody. So it was, it's that kind of feel. It's kind of like um, when you've been away for a while and you, you're not, you know, who's, who's still at home, uh, but you haven't seen them in a while. It's like coming back home and, and you pick up right where you left off. And that's, that's what we did. I mean, uh, I, I remember the night being a really, really electrifying night because again, I grew up watching the funks and now, uh, after, after so many years, here we are again. And, um, so it was, it was, it was really, it was a fun night. And, um, I mean that was it. It it was it was coming back home and and being a part of this uh uh huge show and by all uh everything considered I think it was a, su- a success, you know, Jericho breaking his arm. Uh I think it was like just adding a little more seasoning in the match and we we got to got to experience that. And uh so that that's what I thought. I thought it was great. You're a wrestling fan. It's kind of a must-see event. Like you, you gotta want to watch Smoky Mountain. You gotta want to watch this show. You're right. There's so many of the future potential stars, the current stars, the legends. I mean, it, it really was a complete card, top to bottom. No real quote-unquote bad matches or like you know matches where it's just you, you're not going to want to see it. Each match had its own appeal to it, and, and usually had one or two guys at least that are in it that were definitely worth watching. You'd want to watch. So I think Cornette really did a good job for this. And it's one of those things that I think every wrestling fan should kind of go out of their way to see it if they've never seen it. Well, I think so too. And if for nothing else to see Jericho bleed the way he bleeds and the match, the way it was laid out, because you won't see those kind of matches today and not, not for anything else. The styles change. Things are different. You might see it in AEW. I take that back, but, but, the the crowd, the atmosphere, um, just the overall presentation of all the matches. Uh, I didn't I didn't get a chance to watch, but I can tell by the vibe. I can tell by uh, who was there. You could hear the crowd in the back, and and you asked me really about the crowd response. Man, everybody was getting into it, and you can hear that the roar the, the roar of the popcorn, the smell of the crowd uh, type stuff. You know, hmm. so. Um, yeah, to watch it, it would take you back. And, and I've had people watch old-school matches from the 90s and uh, say, hey, I'm not really into it. Okay, I understand that. But watch the storytelling. Watch the body language. Just watch what happens in between the spots because those are the key elements people need to keep in mind. And you, you can go out and do the moves, but if you have no feeling or passion or emotion uh, while you're doing it and you, and you don't do anything in between the moves, you just stand there or you look like a deer in the headlights, well, that's where everything kind of gets lost. But, but it's, it's just like uh, going to a good concert. You, you, I've been to some really great concerts and great shows in my lifetime, uh, and, and some I was really disappointed with because the guy just stood on stage and played music. But if you hunch over, or if you if you just just move your shoulders a little bit, or you, or, or you move just one one part of your body, the sound's going to come off different. Everybody can play the same song, but you put your spin on it, you put your seasoning in it. 
uh, then it becomes yours. And that's the same thing um, with, with the Night of Legends. It was uh, a, a match for everybody to, to see, from old, old school fans to new school fans to, to young fans to, to the fans who knew about Orton, uh, Slater, the Mongolian Stomper, and Ronnie Garvin. And, and new school fans were looking for the thrill seekers to kick our ass, and then they did. So, um yeah, they, it, it really is something. If everyone should should go to YouTube and, and see Night of Legends, and if nothing else, watch the Heavenly Bodies versus Thrill Seekers, and watch Jericho get the living hell beat out of him, and come back and beat us. That was great. And people popped because they they didn't expect it, or maybe they did, but but they popped like they didn't, which was always good. And it's always fun. Actually, I think if you want to own it, I think uh, JimCornette.com. I think Cornette's still selling them. I think he's still autographing them too. So yeah, I think if you want to own a piece of history, just go there. I I I couldn't agree more. JimCornette.com has a lot of stuff for sale that I highly recommend. By the way. Now speaking of some plugs and stuff, obviously Pro Wrestling Tees has a store for JPWA and has a store for Doctor Tom. I highly recommend he wanted dead or alive shirt. Also, JPWA has a Patreon page where you can become a patron and support the JPWA. Watch some training tips and training videos, kind of get all immersed in pro wrestling with JPWA. Check out their website, jpwrestlingacademy.com. You can follow Dr. Tom on Twitter, at Dr. Tom Pritchard. You can follow me, at Two Man Power Trip. Check out my my website, tmptempire.com. Now, Dr. Tom, what do you got going on for personal appearances? Well, March 13th and 14th, I'm going to be in Raleigh, Mississippi for Battlezone Wrestling. Also on April 4th, the night before WrestleMania in Tampa, Mm. Florida, uh, the Nightmare Before Mania seminar with David Rolano. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the building. These are all going to be uh, all on our website, jpwrestlingacademy.com, April 4th, the night before WrestleMania. I'm going to be actually, uh, (laughs) I will be, uh, at the Hall of Fame, just checking it out, coming in to watch the Bellas get inducted, uh, Batista, the NWO, and, and some other guys too. So I'll be down there uh, probably Wednesday night and check it out Thursday at the Hall of Fame. Um, but April 6th, the night before Mania, we have a seminar. There's going to be a sh- – or April 4th, I'm sorry, uh, night before, Nightmare Before WrestleMania, April 6th. Our new class begins. It goes April 6th through June 26th. And real quick, April 11th, I'm going to be in Gastonia, North Carolina, with George South. Now, real quick, let me just say this. I know we got to go. But uh, George South and I, at this time, are supposed to be teaming against this new young upstart tag team by the name of the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky and Carrie Morton. Ricky's son. Uh, so I think there will be some more information as we get it uh, on our website as well. So um, that's that's pretty much what I have going on so far. I also have a real quick May 2nd in Dallas. I'm doing a seminar for Sir Mo of Men on a Mission, and I'll have more information on our website as uh, that gets closer to. Awesome stuff, and highly recommend these seminars if you want to learn from one of the greatest trainers in the history of pro wrestling definitely get out there attend a seminar meet dr tom in person of course please continue to listen to us each and every week on 
taking you to school with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.